Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no-fluff actionable marketing podcast for marketers, marketing consultants, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you'll learn how to generate results in the long term instead of focusing on short-term revenue goals using growth marketing experiments. My guest today is a growth marketing expert and he's been so for the last 15 years. He's also French, which is quite uh, interesting. I don't speak to many French people on this podcast. Uh, he's been working on projects covering B2B growth mostly, so he has a special taste for that. His CV is, I would say, rather impressive. So he's an advisor for G2 Crowd or G2 Now, Hull, Monkey Learn, former VP of Growth at Drift, at Segment, former head of growth marketing at Mansion. Mm-hmm. I mean, massive respect for your experience, uh, Guillaume Caban. Uh, welcome aboard. Thank you, Louis. Thank you. So I guess because we're both French, we're going to spend one hour talking about cheese and croissant. Yeah, which is the, the cliche, but that's, I miss it, you know? As you know, I don't live in France and neither do you, so we, we both miss it, don't we? Yeah, so you miss the cheese, man. So yeah. thank you. Thank you very much for having me uh, today. Thanks for, for the recap on my experience. I think I've been very lucky, uh, honestly. And, you know, uh, sometimes you just gotta, just, you just got to go with, you know, what, what you think you'll find luck. Yeah, and there's a bit of survivorship bias in tech, right? You see a lot of those people extremely successful, and then you look back at what they've done, and you try to say, well, if I do the same, I'll, su- I'll succeed as well. But it's not really the case, right? So I get a chance in this podcast to talk to the the survivors, right? The people who are successful, but there's probably plenty of people who try to do what you did, who, who struggle. I know a lot of French fellow who studied in, in marketing as well, who had like, you know, good business school, studied in good business school like you did never had the CV that you have. So do you think it's all down to luck? Do you think there's a bit of skills? You know, I often say that if I'm, if I'm not a good marketer, at least I'm a good uh, uh, logo picker. I've been pretty good at picking logos of companies, you know, that succeeded. You know, which is, um, there's a, this, this, strange, this strange like halo effect of like, you think that someone that works at a successful company is a, a successful person and a good person, which honestly is not true. Like that person, joined the right company and sure that person got in and got through the interview process but it's, it's a, very much like a, a, a business school right like getting in the business school is hard but like does it mean that you're a good person or that you're smart like debatable right and so and so yeah there's a strong halo effect uh, uh that's for sure and so i think i'm a good picker i've been able, I've been able to pick the right companies that will succeed and and, and grow uh, and that my friend unfortunately is mostly luck because I think that I don't have as um, much insights as investors, VCs, and good VCs, bad VCs, you know what we say? They all have a 10% success rate. You know? mm-hmm. So like, there's, there's no such thing as choosing the companies which will succeed. If you, <laughs> listeners, if you, if you have a way to know which companies will succeed, invest. <laughs> you will be massively successful. And I mean, that brings a question then. It's so you pick Mansion, you, you work with Mansion, you work with Drift, you work with, with others. What was your thought process then when you kind of started to work with them? Like, how did you know or how did you feel? Actually, that sounds like a nice rocket ship to be part of. So, so it's an interesting story I've never talked about because I get a lot of questions like, um, which, is, which is like, how was I able to join segments? Which was like a massive rocket ship and dripped, which is also a massive rocket ship. Like at, at a stage where like they, they were already very advanced. I joined segment when there were 50 people, uh, mm-hmm. just after the series B. Uh, and I left 18 months later when there were like 200 something. 
um, and I joined Drift at 50 people. And it's, I'm not sure people realize it's really hard. Like those, like those roles, those opportunities are almost impossible to get once the acceleration curve has started. All right. Because everyone's in. And so my strategy that I've been working on for a long time is I build long lasting connections and trust. Look, segments. Segments is a good example. I joined in 2016, um, early 2016, like February 2016. Um, and I've been talking to the three founders. I found an email since late 2013. And we had back and forth for three years about product and markets. And then when I was at Mention, I became a customer. Then I started doing speaking. I did keynotes on how marketers should use segments. And eventually in, in 2015, they said, hey, G, like, we think that we should work together. And like, it was not a question of like, do we trust each other? Because we did. Do we know each other? We do. They know exactly who I am. I know who they are. I know the product. I trust the product. And so like, it's just a question of like, is this the right time for both of us? And so all the rest is eliminated. Okay. Drift, exactly same story. I was the first enterprise customer when there were less than, than, less than 10 people. And I pushed them to integrate with Clearbit, with Segment and a lot of other things. Right. And eventually, like, same trust, uh, connections. I knew the product and knew the team. Right. And all of that stems from me starting. So I was an entrepreneur a long time ago in uh, 2012, 2013, and a failed one, I have to say. Um, and, and so when I stopped that, I became, uh, um, I did a part-time mentoring uh, for free in, in uh, a French incubator called uh, Numa uh, in a couple of other places and started helping people. And that is what has produced the career. This, the, the network building through mentorship, then through advisory, Building connections, helping, like, I, I realized how much, like, the American thing, like, you know, like, you paid forward and it, it, it comes back one day. It does. It really does. You know, it takes time. I like, if you expect something, like, that's the wrong, uh, uh, um, let's say mental model, right? But if you expect nothing, if you really help, it, it pays back. And I think one difference between me and many, many marketers is that I usually accept uh, uh, quick demos or quick or quick uh, coffees or, or, or calls with entrepreneurs who are at the very beginning of that project and just want to like bounce a couple of ideas, want to show me what they're working on or want me to try their tool and get some feedback. I usually take most of those uh, if they're at least in my space, which is like B2B SaaS, uh, where I think I can be helpful. And then I, I, I keep in touch, you know, and some of them succeed. So I create my own survivor bias where like, of course, like those who survive, those who succeed over time, like they have seen the value. And if they don't see the value, that's fine. They, they go somewhere else, but some do, right? And that, that creates the resume you see today. And so you didn't growth hack your way into success, into finding those companies, right? You actually, it took you a long time. And I think that's, isn't it, isn't it a great lesson in terms of like what we're going to talk about in the next few minutes? Because you took your time, you build trust. You treated those people like, you know, like people build relationships, didn't expect anything. You just gave, 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 and then you received in return, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. And and the same is true for like me being today on a podcast. Like I expect nothing when I do keynotes. I do like um, a, a very high number of speaking engagements per year. And I do it to help people succeed because I believe I can help them. And yeah, it is true that sometimes people reach back years after saying, hey, I watched this. I really like it. It helped me. And I'd like to work with you. And sometimes the stars align. But like, I think one thing people need to realize is that for the stars, for the planets to align, 
to become a great project, you need to have a ton of things going on because the, the percentage is low. It's just a conversion rate on your website, right? For somebody to be, to be in love with your product, with your marketing message and say, yes, I want to buy, you need hundreds of people. The same is true for job opportunities or advisories or whatever it is for the personally, right? You need to have a lot of those things going on so that you can select the best, the top of the top. That's a great summary, uh, what we just discussed there. So in terms of like your specialty, right? Growth marketing, growth hacking, it definitely has a bad rap, right? And I personally think sometimes, right? In the, the side or in the opinion that too many use growth hacking as an excuse to use shitty short-term tactics, you know, that serve them over the customers. And overall, it gives a bad rap to the methodology that is not new, but has been employed in, in those businesses. So I'm curious for you, uh, what's the difference between, what's the limit between like being persuasive in your marketing and being scammy, spammy, uh, and shitty in your marketing? So, I mean, it's interesting, you know, uh, so I'm in the Silicon Valley, I'm in the SF. And so I have a higher concentration in my um, network and people I talk to in the day-to-day of like larger successful startups. So again, I have like a survivor bias or at least a selection bias in 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 my uh, in my perception my day to day, and uh, and of course like if you the the growth people that I talk to there's very little um, scammy uh, shady or, or I'd say intrusive uh, marketing going on like if you look at Airbnb or Dropbox or other companies like that today like there's definitely none of that going on because like that would not fly at all right. Um, and we're talking more usually of, you know, um, new ways to penetrate uh, markets or channels or how to do things differently to differentiate. Uh, and it's a lot around like um, creating an experimentation model to be able to be very efficient at experimenting to find stuff that works better than competitors. Now, the bad rap comes from like if you're pressured to find a, a leverage have higher performance, you don't have ideas and you don't care about the brand or the long term, then yeah, sure, things can go south. Yeah, uh, for sure. But like, you know, if we go back to my experience, it's funny. It's like if you if you roll back uh, almost 10 years now, I worked in IT security for two years. I was a CMO for French IT security uh, firm, uh, consulting firm. And so I worked a lot in, in, um, in social engineering and pen testing and things like that and for, for two years, right? And there are very interesting similarities between scammers and, and people who do social engineering um, uh, for, let's say, uh, malicious purposes and marketers. In both cases, we are trying to convince a random stranger or anonymous person on the internet uh, of that what we say is true. In both cases, we're trying to have them pay or shell or give us the credit card or some money. In both cases, right? We're trying to like get a transaction, right? And in both cases, we usually start with like an ad or an email, right? So the only difference is that marketers, in the end, there's a product, right? Now, I have a talk track recently where I say the issue is that marketers are incentivized to overpromise. And I think that's where it starts to slide a bit. And I explain, I think the problem comes from marketers a bit. It also comes from how are marketers incentivized and how the company is structured uh, to push marketers to do the right thing or the wrong thing, right? Marketers are usually incentivized for uh, fluffy KPIs, fluffy metrics, uh, traffic, mm, signups, 
uh, leads, um, maybe social engagement, stuff like that. All of that is BS. It has absolutely no value because we can cheat on any of those metrics to create a perception of that engagement at, at with very low quality, you know? And, and I'm French, so I know that cheating is, is uh, I know about cheating, right? Uh, and, and, um, it's, it's, uh, it's staggering that very few organizations have marketers incentivized for the bottom line for revenue. Okay. For the only thing that matters, and I don't mean just immediate revenue. We're talking of LTV. Okay. Lifetime value of the customer. Now, my argument for you is if your marketer is incentivized for the long-term value and you seem that I, I usually assume that people paying for a long time are happy customers, and that's a good thing for both of us. That's my assumption. And I think we can all agree on that. People stay for a long time, they're happy, it means they get value. So it's good. It's good. So that's what I try to optimize for. That's what I want organizations to optimize for. And that's the answer, right? In a sense, it's like as long as as long as your goals are really geared towards the happiness of customers, then you're very unlikely to to use shady manipulative tactics because it's going to bite you in the ass. This person is never going to turn into a happy customer, right? I have a slide, man, that I've used recently where I say so. So, personal story: my wife is a salesperson, right? So, uh, at the dinner table, we have both sides of the of the conversation, okay? And salespeople they have clawback, okay? So, for those who don't understand what is clawback, it means as a salesperson. If you oversell, if you push a customer to buy, uh, and that person churns within a defined time frame, usually three months, four months, you know, something like that, that person churns, the company will claw back. You can imagine a, a bear clawing the food back. So the, your company will claw back the commission, take it back, um, and you will lose the commission from that sale because it has assumed that you have oversold. Uh, we have sold someone who will, would not be happy. And that is... Honestly, pretty standard these days. Okay. And it's a good thing. It, it, it prevents salespeople from like over promising, overselling, whatever, right? There is no such thing for marketers, but there should, there 100% should, because it's even worse. Uh, example, marketers is, 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 uh, pressed for, uh, results like, um, signups. Okay. If I'm a shitty marketer, let's put my shitty marketer hat on, right? <laughs> and I press results and, and I don't have any, a negative incentive, right? Only I, I, I will take a bonus if we reach a sign-up goal. What am I incentivized to do? I will overpromise on my ads by saying this product will change your life. It will do it in only two clicks and it's free forever, All right? And none of that is true. That's not exactly what we do, but we do some of it. All right. We definitely do some of it. We all put some ads saying like, oh, as easy as two clicks. And like, no, man, this takes a lot more than two clicks, even just for signing up, right? So we, we minimize the perception of friction, right, of effort, and we maximize the perception of value. When actually, and so we're not honest, we're dishonest in some ways. And what we do when we're doing that is we're pushing the friction, the churn, okay, downwards in the funnel on the sales, on the CS people, on the company, right? The, the, the disillusion will happen. It's, it is going to happen. Just not within your uh, org. It's going to happen somewhere else. And that is what we need to solve. Okay. Um, and so the marketing tactic, the growth marketing only matters if you create long-term value and then it's fine. So let's say, let's take the scenario of you starting to work for a B2B SaaS company, right? I mean, that's your specialty. We'll take that as an example. As I mentioned in the intro, you're an advisor to multiple. So you know exactly this scenario. Let's say you start working with a new one. 
right? And you might want to take a real example of fictional one depending on your NDAs and whatnot. It's up to you. Uh, but let's say they come to you with a problem, right? Like usually they want to grow more. Like can I say that's kind of the, the problem? Like they yeah, want to usually grow more. they want to grow more and they don't know how to. All right. So they come with this problem and the goal is, you know, they want to grow more and you know that LTV is the is the is the is the North Star, right? They need to generate happy customer at the end. What is the first step that you take to help them? Or like or at least what do you tell them to do as first step? Yeah. So using my process, the first thing is that before accepting a customer, I will start looking into the data because there's a lot of people who I will not work for because it's a lost cause. And so I'm, I'm, I'm good at identifying that, right? That's the first thing. And so let's look at that, right? The first thing is I try to, I try to look at the funnel and to understand, do we have enough high quality interested prospects somewhere in the funnel, but we need to improve the conversion throughout the funnel? Okay. Or are we lacking quality of people or we're just lacking volume? It's one of those three. Right, it's, you can simplify the world like that, right? If you have enough high-quality prospects in your funnel, you know, then you need to improve your sales efficiency. Maybe you need to touch the people a bit more. You need to educate them a bit more. You need to like, there's a couple of things you can go in like that, and you look at where your funnel contracts or where you're uh, losing revenue, potential revenue. Okay, if you have a lot of folks in your funnel, especially at the top, but they don't convert, we probably have a quality issue. Okay, and usually I, I'll go into strategies around that. Like I do enrichment, I try to understand who do we have, why are not converting, how do we bring them? And basically that's usually a, a, a disalignment of marketing or branding and the product, right? It's like we have a blog that talks about fantastic things, which brings lots of entrepreneurs, but we actually sell a product that is completely different. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work. Okay. Um, and, and the third is that you just don't have enough volume. Um, and, and then we got to wonder, like, have we tried stuff? Or have we not? And and do we even have a marketing audience? So quality of prospects, enough quality prospects in the funnel that are not converting, prospect, but maybe not quality, and then no prospect. Correct. Yeah. And um, the people I won't take uh, usually uh, is people who don't know because they're not tracking. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work, folks. Okay. If you don't know what's happening, it's the, that's a lost cause uh, usually. Um, and uh, so... So, so, so that's that. Um, and, and so once I go through the, the, so the, the, the first three and I identify that, <clears throat> I try to understand. Uh, so if we look at usually what happens, people who come to me, they have some volume. Uh, growth marketing is usually helpful only post-product market fit. Okay. Um, if we take the words growth marketing is to grow, you know, something that exists. It's not market education. It's not finding product market fit. All of those are great things. It is not what I do. Okay. Um, I usually am not helpful if you're creating something uh, brand new that needs, that has no competition, that has no existing market, and you need to create the market. That is a completely different branch of marketing, uh, like traditional uh, branding and market education, which I don't do at all. I respect all, but I don't do. So those I also exclude. So usually people come to me and they have. No, southern they already have a product, which is usually pretty good. And usually, honestly, usually entrepreneurs build pretty good products. The product is rarely the core problem. I mean, you can you can see the problem if like this high churn and stuff like that. It's it's rarely the core problem. Usually, they have a pretty good product. Uh, and when I look at like companies that succeed and fail, like I see, I see like companies with great products that fail, right? I also see 
companies with like 3D average products that succeed, right? So usually success is not tied that much to product quality. It can help, but it's not tied that much. Um, usually what's, what we're going to see is that one, lack of marketing, just like they are, they're not testing channels, right? They don't have the habit of testing channels and that is like low volume, right? And they, that could be because they, they just don't have the habit of experimenting. And so they're going to help them like come with a framework of, okay, let's test messages on channels. Let's understand who the audience should be for this product. What are those people? And then what messages uh, makes them resonate? Okay. And then I'm going to uh, understand, like, uh, I look on a very granular, uh, like channel by channel, message by message, all those people converting. I'm trying to find what fits, what makes people tick. Okay. And uh, so I have a tip here. Um, I'd say nine out of 10 companies where I get access to the data, I see something really funny. One, they pay a lot of money to acquire customers. Huge acquisition budgets. Okay. Two, they really don't track, um, they don't keep the information of the acquisition in their CRM. Example, you buy stuff on AdWords. Okay. So you're going to buy some, some clicks on, and some traffic from AdWords. Okay. If you're good at AdWords, you know that you should have very granular campaigns and ad groups and ad messages. Okay. All of that, all of that, those insights, you can pass in the query string and then pass into the lead when, if there's a lead uh, form, you can store it in the lead form and thus on the CRM, which can help your salesperson understand what made this specific person take what made them interested in my product. What was the core message? Nine out of 10 companies just don't capture the data or throw it away. And salespeople need to do a discovery call to understand, oh, why are you coming to us? What made you interested? And that is, that is the good example of what I solve. You see, because I work across all of the silos of the company, I see where we are losing interesting insights that we have paid for and that are helpful to help us uh, create a better experience. And that is the core thing I do. I try to create a better experience at the, through the entire life cycle of the customer um, to make them happier and, and more likely to pay for my product. Okay, so let's cover those, those two aspects. One is the auditing, and I want to know more about how you do that. And the second part is like uh, the insight and how you make sure that you don't lose insight throughout the funnel. But the first one is audit, right? So I think that will be interesting to people listening right now who probably have some of the tools that you're looking into. I suspect you, you use Google Analytics, Google AdWords, anything that you can get your hand on. So how do you actually audit those channels. So you said you look at the channels and then you look message by message, ad by ad or whatever else. What is your method there? Yeah, yeah. So I have one recently. Uh, I'm not going to name them, but uh, I have one recently. Uh, they have, I'd say, reasonably good uh, traffic. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to call that in, in, you know, uh, let's say let's call it like a 1,000 to 3,000 unique visitors a day. Okay, so like reasonably good. Not huge, but like yeah, reasonably good. Uh, of which like half is organic, is, is half is like uh, paid or, or, or activated through like marketing channels. Okay. I start creating like, uh, funnels. I understand, okay, like what is the conversion rate of my organic, uh, channel? Okay. Um, at all steps. So how many go through my homepage, my sign up and activate my product and eventually pay and stay for, uh, let's call it 90 days. Okay. So then I roll back the revenue from each visitor. Um, and so I have a value per visitor. Okay, so I'm going to say, okay, well, an organic visitor on average is worth, let's call it like $10, okay, based on like lifetime value. So like LTV is like $10 if, if the math works out. 
Then I compare that with other channels. Um, what's the LTV? What's that? What's my uh, LTV of uh, paid? Uh, maybe of social and other things. That gives you an average. Now most people stop here, which is a mistake. Um, what I usually do is I start to I start to break down within each channel, okay? Because the average number is very misleading. You actually have a huge distribution because if you look within organic, that average ten dollars is actually spread on like three percent who pay and ninety seven percent who don't pay. Right, so like making an average on such a big distribution is uh, statistically a very, very big mistake. Okay, so now you need, you need to understand who are the people who pay. What do they have in common? So they signed up. They signed up, which means you know who they are. I do in B two B. You know the company. You can you can do some analysis. I usually pull data from Clearbit. So I use Clearbit, which is a data enrichment provider, uh, to enrich those companies to know more about their size, their industry, a uh, couple of uh, some graphics. I also work with a company called Matkudu, uh, which I do advise, which does like um, uh, lead scoring uh, models and gives me insights into like what do they have in common. Mm-hmm. The trick I have, my one of my core tricks recently, is I will um, use an API from Clubit, which is called Clubit Reveal, which helps me understand um, from a set of IP addresses which companies uh, are in that set, so which companies are visiting my site anonymously but not converting. Score them. Look which ones have uh, paid and understand within one channel, let's call it organic, let's call it 100 people, how many are actually qualified? Is it 50? Is it 10? How many have signed up within those? You know, now if I have like, for example, like the average I see is like 30% quality, like pretty good quality, right? If I have like 10 people out of 30 that qualified out of 100 from that channel, it means my actual sign up rate is not 10 out of 100. It's down of the 30 because the others are not qualified. They're never going to pay. Okay. Now, 10 out of the 30 is a pretty decent conversion rate, right? It's a third, 30%, 32%. Okay. If my conversion rate within that segment is actually five, now I know I have an issue. If it's two, I have a huge issue, right? And I try to understand the other people who have not converted but are qualified, why have they not converted? Is it a different message that they have clicked on? Maybe that message resonates for people who will never convert. Example, you have in your AdWords uh, ads around like uh, free and like free trial and stuff like that. And you have other ads which are more on the features of the product, right? If you treat AdWords as the, as a global group, you're going to miss that the data, right? Of who are the people who are coming, even if they don't sign up. Maybe you're destroying value by pushing qualified people through a free message and then they see a pricing page and they have, uh, let's say, um, disillusionment, right? And so you're destroying value. And you should actually remove those uh, free messages, of those free ads, because anyways, they're not bringing people who are going to pay. So I try to be very specific, and then I try to understand, like, and then I do like an average on the small percentage of people who are qualified and should be able to convert, right? And so I do a lot of data enrichment. Clubbit is one example. I also use Datanize. For example, like I was at Drift in the past. Drift is a live chat tool, okay? And look at the traffic. So who are we selling to? We're selling to businesses that have salespeople. Okay, that's a good, that's a good, let's say, uh, smaller sample. Now, if people are using a competitor intercom, that's even better. I know they're qualified. They're already paying for the tool. If somebody who uses intercom comes to Drift, that means they're unhappy about that tool. If they don't convert, it means we were unable to convince them that we have a better solution, which means that marketing needs to change. Okay. And here, this is positive marketing. I know, I know enough to know that I'm doing a bad job 
for that specific segment. Okay, so that's my other phase. And I pulled examples and I showed my salespeople into my CR show examples saying, hey, like those 20, 50, 200 accounts came, viewed five pages. I have six different cookies coming. They have intercom. They have this thing. They have the right size. They're in the US. They did not sign up. We have an issue. We need to change the message. Okay, and that is clear as water because I can tell them how much value we have lost. So let me let me try to repeat it in my own words, and let me uh, and please correct me if I'm if I'm explaining it wrong. So traditionally, marketers have a very tough job to try to understand the traffic coming to their site. Like its traffic is anonymized, right? You don't know who they are until they sign up. So what you do first is you look at their behavior, you look at sign-up customers, you try to identify what are the common attributes that make them convert, whether they are for drift, okay, they have salespeople, they used to use intercom, maybe that's the best attribute. And what you do there is then you try to do the same for traffic that is haven't converted yet and try to guess kind of what is the quality of this traffic based on information you can glean online. Yes, because I'm in B2B, because, and that's specific to B2B people, I can go from the IP address to a company name. Yeah, sometimes. It's not perfect, right? I mean, let's, let's be clear. No, oh, 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 totally. It's not meant to say, like, here's all the people. It's like 30% coverage. But for statistical analysis, it's more than I need. Yeah, and that's important to say, right? So don't expect those type of tools, like as you said, Dadanize or Clearbit Arrangement, uh, to to actually tell you every single anonymous visitor and to tell them like who they are, their name and whatever. That's not going to happen, right? That's not going to happen. Uh, the point is only like statistical analysis because the distribution of like coverage is like the same from one child to the other, more or less. And so if you have much lower quality uh, on one child than the other, like then it tells you something. One quick example, like I had, when I was at segments, Quora had, was bringing fantastic traffic, great conversions, great quality, fantastic signups. And we said, we want more of that. Right. And at the same time, Quora launched Quora ads. And so I thought, hey, this is a great channel to experiment on. Let's buy more of that traffic. Right. And by doing this like very quick iteration on like uh, traffic quality, I was able to see in 48 hours that the paid traffic from Quora was of a much lower quality than the organic traffic. And so we stopped. Within, within what? 48 hours, you said? 48 hours. Yeah. We didn't. And the benefit here is that if you look at segment, segments sales cycle, so trial, sales, whatnot, is months. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. usually marketers need to pay for traffic or for that channel for months before they realize that there's no LTV. Okay. In my case, because I run predictions real time uh, based on like uh, past conversion, past data, uh, I'm able to know, uh, yeah, within, as soon as I have statistical significance, within like a couple of days, whether it's worth uh, continuing or not which in this case, it wasn't. So you basically get a, a, an understanding of the quality of the traffic. And you said, like, if, if it's what? If, it's, if the quality is 30%, it's usually quite high. If it's like, if 30% of the traffic matches the type of people you want to attract, it's quite high. And you said if, if it's below five, you said it's really bad, right? Yeah, 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 for, for sure. Like 30% of like um, people in your ISP or ideal customer profile it's it's a very high percentage, okay, a very very high, and but like five percent is like is also like very low, uh, and you, you can do the math yourself on a napkin. You just like calculate your your CAC to LTV, and you see that you know going um, from a third of the traffic you pay for. Imagine that your cost per click, you know, on uh, on AdWords is going to be like in the couple dollars, you know, um, 
and you have like one third of those that are qualified, you know, it means that your your qualified visitors can be like it's called like 10 bucks, like three times three, like 10 bucks, right? Like, okay. Um, and you have a 10% conversion uh to a product to sign up, which means now your sign up cost is a hundred dollars. And if you have 10% of those who pay, that means your paid is like a thousand dollars. Can you recover a thousand dollars if it's SaaS product? Yeah, you know, usually in a couple of months you can do that, right? Now, if it's five percent, now it's like five times more expensive. Your paid is like now five thousand, six thousand bucks. That's hard to recover, right? And that's the way I think about it. So that's your audit, and like basically, the the, re the end result of your audit is a, a funnel with conversion rate after conversion rate, right? From from visits to to first touch, second touch, et cetera, et cetera, up, and, up to revenue. And as you mentioned at the start, right, up until the business metric that actually matters, not the fluffy, shitty metrics that you can add in the middle of it, right? So at the end of this, once you have this information, you also said uh, a few minutes ago, you said nine out of 10 companies don't have, don't carry across the insight, right? They, they kind of miss all of that. So how do you advise folks to do it better without necessarily spending thousands and thousands of months on a tool, but like, well, how do you advise people to do it so that they actually get data and not waste money on and losing it in the middle? Yeah. In the middle yeah. Of it? I mean, so like once the audit is done, like usually what I see is, um, you know, on a channel by channel basis, like which channels have high quality, which channels convert. And I see opportunities. It's, it's, there. it's clear as water. Like you're going to see channels with like good traffic, good quality of traffic, low conversions. And you say, well, let's start, you know, let's drive that traffic to a specific landing page that we're going to try iterate multiple messages. It's the first thing, right? Um, let's try to engage those people differently with a different channel. Maybe you know, we should have a, a chat on, on that page and maybe they need more help, like, depending on the channel and the type of company you're bringing in, right? Other channels, you're going to cut them, like reduce cost because you know the quality is not there, right? Uh, third channels, you say, well, we have good traffic good quality, which need more volume. Let's invest more there, right? And so those are all very obvious outcomes, to be, to be honest. So let's let's talk about the scenarios. They might, they might be obvious for you, but I think it's good to repeat them and to see the type of scenarios, right? So you have the first one being good traffic, low conversions, right? So that means, okay, we're bringing good people. Let's, let's optimize the, the page or the funnel. Then you could have shitty traffic, Therefore, like shitty conversion, let's scrap that. Yeah. Or, like, yeah. or let's change completely how we're approaching that channel. Like it's the wrong message, it's the wrong audience, wrong targeting. Let's see. Yeah, completely like start from zero again. Basically. Yeah, yeah, scratch, yeah. Uh, and then you might have good traffic, good conversion, but not enough volume, right? It's like it's converting two leads a day. It's not enough. Let's find ways to improve yeah, the channel. Yeah. Are, the, are those the three scenarios or do you have more? Yeah, it's, it's, no, it's basically the, those are the three main scenarios um, that, that you have. What are the most common? What are the ones that you see the most out of the three to start with? Sure. Uh, good channel, low conversions, uh, uh, lo lo low volume, sorry. So low volume is, is, is a typical problem. Uh, and that happens and that leads to like uh, for entrepreneurs who are like, building their business plan, it's a typical mistake is that they start doing some stuff on like social and like LinkedIn, Twitter, stuff like that. And they have like a couple of like clicks a day, visits a day that convert pretty well, and then they built a whole business plan around that. That's a misunderstanding because the the channel, the market will react, like the early adopters will find you, 
will and will react positively to your message because that's who they are. They're early adopters, right? It does not mean that there's an infinite supply of those people. Okay. Usually, as you scale, costs go up and conversion goes down. It gets harder and harder. Just think like there's a tree, and what we see in English is low hanging fruits, right? You pick those fruits, then you need to climb the tree. So people forget that after the low-hanging fruit, you need to climb the tree, right? And so usually, there's just not more of those people, and you just need to accept that you know, you've mined the, the easy conversions of that channel, and now you need to see if the rest makes sense, okay? Um, sometimes you can say, okay, I'm going to completely exploit that channel. Uh, example, at Drift, uh, we found in the early days that posting on Product Hunt was good. It really it was free and brought really good traffic that converted well. Problem is, like you post once and it's done. So, like, how do you maximize that, right? And so, what we did is we said, well, we're going to post every month a new feature called a product. Okay, we're going to have a nice video. We're going to have influencers uh, repost and like upvote it and whatnot. And we're going to win. We're going to be the number one every time we post. Okay, so we built a machine that we knew how to like crank and relaunch every month. We posted for 12 months straight. Okay, if you look on Product Hunt for Drift, you're going to see like 12 products month after month. We mined that channel like completely. Everyone on that on that channel who was going to learn about Drift learned about Drift, right? And then we moved on to the next channel. So I think there's a strong benefit to maximizing your presence on a channel, uh, being all in, right? And then moving on, rather than being very um, uh, uh, dispersed and, and having like very limited returns. Like there is like a, a take all uh, strategy. And that's interesting because I, I do remember seeing Drift every single fucking month and being like, Jesus Christ, yet another product. But yeah, I, I mean, it works. People remember that, right? So as, as you said, yes, let's say, let's say, let's take the scenario. You're a new entrepreneur. You've noticed that your first product on Product Hunt worked really well. You build the entire business plan on it saying, Hey, the next five years, our growth is going to be 100x and we're going to do Product Hunt every month for the next five years. It's not going to work, right? Because one, you're going to plateau, right? You're going to reach the same people. And two, as you said, diminishing returns. There, it's not because you have a 10% conversion rate today on a channel that if you multiply the volume by 10, that you're going to have 10% after that, right? Yeah. It, you, you really got to think, like, the reason I use mine, like you got to think a channel like a mine. Like I, 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 I explained that, uh, that this recently in, in a keynote. <clears throat> and I said, Costs on Facebook are going up. CPCs are going up on average, right? And the reason for that is that inventory is stable, but there are more advertisers. Think about this. Facebook is doing a lot of interesting and shady stuff. One thing they're not doing, creating more Americans, okay? So the number, <laughs> so the number of people you can advertise to on Facebook is stable. That's what it is, right? It's, well, maybe that's why they are launching their, their dating product, I think. Sure. <laughs> long-term strategy. Long-term. Very long-term. Yeah, yeah, but like, yeah. so for the moment, as a marketer, if you're marketing to like some profession or some type of role in, in businesses on Facebook, that is a finite market. It is as finite as if you were mining gold in a mine. Okay? And so you're trying to do it the most efficiently possible, and you're trying to understand that this has a limit. You're going to get to the end of it. It isn't, uh, it, which is different for B2C. Because B2C, the volume is like big enough that you can cut almost close to infinite. In B2B, like, if you look at Drift, Drift is a good example. Companies that, you know, all, or like have like over 10 salespeople in the US, 
There's a finite number of that. Now, if you look, they have a website and they sell through internet. We're talking about a couple hundred thousand in the US, and that's it. Okay. And so if we go back to the quality of marketing, you know, uh, and, and how we invest for the long term, I always think, okay, I could burn that market to the ground in two days if I wanted to spam everyone. It's easy. You know, I could definitely spam all those companies and I would do a great quarter and then I'd be fired. Okay. Now the question is like, how do I maximize my revenue over the smallest number of people? So I can be the most efficient possible. So I need to find, I need to know who is ready to buy now. Who is the right person? What is the right message? Okay. Those are the things that I'm trying to uh, figure out and which, which channel should I use? Okay. I don't want to spam them. I want to convert with as little effort as possible. It's margin maximization, CAC to LTV. Okay. And so I try, and that's why I'm buying a lot of data. We, we talked about data nice stuff, clip I do a lot of other things. <clears throat> To understand who is in a buying cycle, which tool are they using? Am I a competitive situation? Uh, are they like are they hiring salespeople? Like what's happening that I can know I can leverage to help my sales process to help my conversion? And if they don't match that, it's not the right time. I know that I'm going to need to push too strong, and we talked of clawback. It means I will face clawback. Okay, it's like if I'm pushing uh, an expensive live chat tool on people who don't need it now, they're going to churn. I mean, that's a great lesson. And that's something we talked about before in the podcast um, about sales, actually, and the sales principle of um, don't bother knocking on doors of people who don't have a, a bleeding neck problem. You know, they have a bleeding neck. Don't bother talking to people who don't have money. Don't bother talking to people who don't have the permission to say yes. You know, those five, um, those five uh, qualifiers uh, from sales. And that's basically what you describe. You identify through your work of your data analysis, the most, the people who are the most likely to convert because they're actually looking for a tool. You don't need to convince them of anything. They are fucking looking. You just need to be there for them. Right. And don't lie to yourself. And I think an issue for marketers is we tend to lie to ourselves because we need those numbers. And, and I think white papers and webinars is a good example of what we lie to, us, to ourselves. Like we need to give leads to salespeople. And so like we produce a white paper, we do a webinar on a topic that is really just tangential to our core product. And then we have like a thousand people who download the white paper and we say to sales, hey, here's a thousand leads. And I'm like, honestly, are they really leads? And like, we have like, like there's like one intern from IBM who downloaded the white paper. Is IBM a lead? And like, I see that all the time. Like, I see those big brands. And like, I once had like a thing, like there was like one guy from Data Airlines who like downloaded something when I was at Segment. I'm like, yeah, guys, like there's 10,000 people in the IT department at Delta. This means nothing. This means absolutely nothing, right? Now, now, if we have like 20 people from Delta that like read something, then yeah, then I have a signal, right? But like, it's a bell curve logic, right? One person from a white logo is, means nothing. So how you, so you mentioned data analysis to do this. Let's talk about how you manage to build the typical profile of someone ready to buy. Because your... Your tools that you mentioned, like Datanize and, and Clearbit, they are great at talking, like at giving you firmographics, demographics, roles, and, and industry and shit like that. But do you go beyond that and look at psychographics? Do you look at behavioral stuff, like triggers? Like, for, just gonna give you an example quickly. It's pretty clear that people buying Pampers. Uh, or planning to, or gonna buy Pampers in the next few weeks, are gonna have a baby. You know, they are, they have a baby. 
uh, and then and then that's going to happen. So it's a life event. If you only look at the person professionally speaking or, or whatever, you're never going to fucking know if she's pregnant, right? So, I mean, that's one example. In B2B, there are other scenarios. That's the only one I could come up with right now on the fly. But So long question, but do you have ways to identify stuff beyond traditional demographics information? Yes. Yeah, so I, I built a specialty of acquiring... Um, let's say what we call a signal data, a business signal data. Uh, uh, before I go into that, I want to say something. I have found no benefit in looking to personal uh, stuff, uh, um, uh, personal stuff, right? Uh, life stuff, like you said, like knowing what they do on their own personal life. When I'm selling business software, one, it's creepy. Two, it really just doesn't help conversion, okay? So stay there. Second, and, and third, like it, it's legally uh, complex, whereas like, Business uh, stuff is very legal and okay to capture. Um, and so I'll go through a couple of examples. We talked about Datanize, which uh, technographics, you know, what our company is using as, as technologies. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I've used stuff from Predict Leads, which is a company that tells me what are companies, what roles are companies hiring? Are they currently hiring for salespeople, CS people, VPs of uh, sales, VPs of product, whatever, right? This is public data that's on that job board. And so the company scrapes all the job boards of all companies in the US and structures that. And so it's legal, it's out there, it's just structured in the way I can use it. Because for me, a company hiring like a bunch of salespeople is a good signal if I'm selling a sales tool. You know, that, that's uh, that's one example. I, I buy data from G2. G2, you know, uh, I was a customer initially because they have intent data saying you which companies are currently um in a buying process and looking at multiple tools in your category. So also, great signal. I look at Bombora, which tells me what companies are, are, are reading on the web. I have like tons and tons and tons of signals like that, right? Uh, to try and understand what's happening in the life of that company, right? And I use it both to understand, is it the right time? And to also to craft the best message. So let's say you, let's say you used uh, the hiring data. So you know... People in the in the in the industry that you want to target are hiring a lot of salespeople. Now you know you know the business name, right? So you're able to extract that as part of it. Then this is where you. What do you do with this information? Then, like, what do you typically do with when you have that information? Typically, that will go out. So, in my case, which is let's say a bit advanced, it automatically flows into enrichment and the contact discovery, and then goes into outbound emails and advertising. Uh, in a more simple use case, you could just like add it to your CRM and give it to a salesperson to reach out to. Um, in my case, because of the volume, it's completely automated. Uh, and if you want to go there, like I, I built a system which is kind of like a bid, bid management system, um, where we, based on the uh, on the behaviors, business behaviors, we uh, create a virtual uh, bid in uh, dollars of like how valuable is the company, how likely they are to close, multiplied by the future predicted uh, uh, LTV. Um, and we know how much of uh, the LTV we're allowed to spend on the CAC, which means we have a bid. And based on the bid, we have automated uh, uh, outcomes uh, in terms of marketing, uh, especially going up to like giving them a, a gift, uh, sending them a gift to send those up uh, because it is a profitable gift, uh, profitable bid. Simple, right? Simple stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I have, a, I have that example which I like to use uh, uh, to explain how that works. Um, if uh, Two years ago, if we went to Segment's website um, anonymously, from a large enough company, you would have a live chat bot that popped up. And just if you were in that category, and a live chat bot, instead of saying, how can we help you? Which is like, 
not very differentiated, right? The live chatbot would say, how do you like your coffee? That's a weird thing to ask for live chatbot because people are like, what? What do you mean? Like, what is this thing? I'm on a business website. And so they would click interact. I already win, right? They are now interacting with my marketing. And the bot would ask, do you like tea or coffee? Do you want milk? Do you want sugar? Um, and what's doing, it's building an order. I know the IP address, which means I need, I know the company, which means I know the HQ. Now, only know, no, I only to ask for the first name to put like Louis on the cup, right? What was happening is that we were building the order, sending it through Sendozo, through Postmates, and delivering the desired hard drink in most US cities within 20 minutes. Okay. Um, it's about 15 to $17 uh, for us, which for the right company is an amazing CAC because it's a memorable experience. I'm delivering something of value. If we go into psychology, I'm creating a reciprocity. People are now on my chat, on my site. And what happens? The salesperson jumps in and says, hey, while you're waiting for the coffee, do you want a demo? It's hard to say no. Right? And so now I have a $17 demo with a large company. This is an amazing cost. All right? It's a great bit. The example of like bidding on the right experience. How did you come up with this idea? And I, I, I'm not necessarily interested in this idea in particular, but like when you know the opportunities, you know, as we mentioned, the, the three scenarios, when you know there's an opportunity, how do you like to experiment or at least come up with, with ideas like that? Like wh where does it come from? I mean, I, as a marketer, I try to be very close to salespeople. I try to see like how are the best salespeople signed. The reason why is that my job is to automate the best human actions. I'm, I'm not doing much more. Look at the best salespeople, the very best ones. You know, they learn a lot about their customer, their future customer. They will ask lots of great questions. They're going to invite the people to great experience. They will send them gifts. They will send them really well-crafted emails. They're going to be helpful. Right? They're going to do all those things. And I really wonder, can I do it? Without interacting manually, can I do this? Can I do that? And so, for example, like me buying third-party data is the same as a salesperson going to a call and asking the questions. Me sending gifts is the same as salespeople sending gifts. My emails, outbound emails, cold emails, have um, value in them. They are helpful because I have realized that being helpful is one of the best ones. Uh, I have another example for you, uh, outbound, uh, helpful outbound. I work for this company called uh, Gorgias, which is a, uh, a help desk for Shopify stores, uh, people who sell uh, on, on Shopify e-commerce and stuff. And so we realized that, you know, those brands, digital native brands, they're very present on Instagram. And so they post their new products on Instagram. And, you know, if they have a good following, people react and will post messages, most of them positive, some of them negative. Okay. And, you know, as a brand manager, as a CEO of such a brand, you should react to those negative messages and like, you know, try to like calm things down a bit if, if it ever happens. And some people forget what we did. We look at all the brands in the US. We scrape the Instagram profiles. We then scrape the posts regularly. We look at the posts with high engagement. We then look at the responses to those posts. We scrape the content. We use monkey learn for natural language processing and NLP, uh, sorry, and, and, and sentiment analysis. We look for negative messages. If there's negative message, we then look back to see, is there response from the company? If within 48 hours, there's no response from the company, we screenshot the interaction, inject it into the email to the founder and say, hey, you should take care of this. And that's it. We do not talk about product. We do not talk about ourselves. We just say, 
there's something you should you should take care of it, which is valuable. Really, it is. You should do something, and like creates trust over time. We do that once, two times, three times. Eventually, the guy thinks these guys are pretty good. I should look into what they're doing. We have built trust now, and I have created positive, good marketing here. It sounds like the way you come up with ideas really is about scaling what humans do in a sense, right? You're scaling what salespeople do, scaling what you would normally do. Let's say you would you would talk to this founder next to you and go through in Instagram and say, you know, you didn't answer to this guy, you didn't understand to this girl. And you basically scale that using technology so that it's, like, so like it's good marketing, right? Yeah, I'm just displacing humans uh, by, by doing what they're doing, 100%. Yeah, don't forget, my wife is a salesperson. So, like, I, I learn a lot from like what really good salespeople do. That's uh, like unfair advantage on you, huh? <laughs> yes, yeah, so, well, you know, yeah, you take what you have. <laughs> Guillaume, thanks so much for going through this. Uh, a lot of a lot of interesting stuff. I think people can take a lot uh, from what you said in terms of the method you use and the thinking behind it. Not not the ideas themselves, because you know every company is different, but. The methods and the, the way you're thinking about it is, is extremely interesting. There's one thing I'm, I'm, I've been dying to ask you, actually, uh, looking at your CV a bit and your experience, and maybe other people have asked you, but I'm curious. You've stayed l less than two years at Drift, less than two years at Segment, less than two years at Mansion, right? Why is that? Yeah, I am very efficient at a specific scale. Uh, I'm really good at um, taking companies that have almost no MarTech stack, almost nothing in place in creating um, the right infrastructure, uh, the team, the processes to automate all of that. And eventually, you know, companies grow and they become market ships. And like, if you look at like Drift, during when there were 50, there was like marketing-wise very uh, little from a marketing automation and, and growth standpoint, right? And I left it was like uh, a bit beyond 300. Uh, at 300, my job as VP of growth in charge of a team of like 10, 12 people is really a couple of things. Hiring, firing, one-on-ones, exec meetings, none of which are actually coming up or producing experiments, right? And like, I, I am, I have enough ego to believe I'm a pretty decent growth marketer, but I'm definitely not a 10x like manager, um, and that's what it, the job is eventually, right? And so I then rinse and repeat. I say, okay, it's good. Now I can go somewhere else and start again, um, and. And, you know, if I can do that a couple of times, then it's a pretty good story. Gotcha. And, and this is why you switch to advisor, right? Which is a bit easier to do what you do best, right? It's easier to get out. It's, uh, it's easier to get out, uh, indeed, and help them. And they come to me because they say, hey, like, we just raised a Series A with Series B. And, like, we're, like, 30, 40 people. And we really need to, like, like now we have the budget. We need to set up all of those things. And say, and say okay, I know how to do that. Right. What do you think marketers should learn today? That will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Yep. I think sales jobs and marketing jobs are slowly getting displaced by uh, automation. Okay. Um, and so if you think, for example, for example, of people who do uh, paid marketing, that job is disappearing. Okay. It's being replaced by ML engineers, which makes tons of sense. Like, like changing your bids based on like yes or yes data is the job that's really well replaced by like algorithms. The same is true for like a lot of other things in, in marketing, which is like deciding who should get what piece of content. A couple of years from now, that is going to get like completely automated, which means we have a couple of like things that will resist. One is coming up with the copy and the creative. That's going to resist longer. It, it will eventually get automated, but like much further uh, downwards, right? So coming, like being a very creative, a very good brand and like great copy person, 
that is that has a lot of value. Okay, and the second is somebody who builds the systems, uh, the automation, um, and so being a technical marketer, which is like, uh, of course, like the path I have I have taken, right? Um, and 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 being able to like stack the bricks uh, or, or connect the pipes, if you want, uh, between existing tools, being extremely good at knowing what's the next wave. Uh, one thing I want to say here is, if you work for a company. And you're using Marketo. Marketo is a good tool, sure, fantastic, right? But like, how do you differentiate? Okay, do you think you can have like 10x better copy than anyone else in your market? Honestly, difficult. And you have the same technology, which means like you're gonna send the same you know kind of emails with the same tool. Like, you don't have a competitive edge. Okay, my strategy, if it's not copy, my strategy is to use the bleeding edge. Of tools, be always on the lookout for how can I get a competitive edge through technology. What's the new and upcoming tool to send emails? How is it better? And same for like doing uh, doing social engagement or, or doing anything and scraping and anything else. I always am on the lookout for that. Always, always. And I try to use things that people are not using. So marketing is extremely competitive, especially if you go to Silicon Valley with the uh, vast amounts of money that are here. It is extremely competitive. So if you look at what I'm doing, we talk about like crazy stuff. Like I do stuff like, yeah, I deliver coffees on websites, but I also do like put like content personalization and like email personalization down to the user level. Yeah, it's expensive. It's complicated, but I have to do it, right? Because I want to create a better experience than my competitors. And it's about better user experience. Uh, as you mentioned, and LTV and happy customers, right? Uh, let's not forget that. Thanks for this answer. Um, what are the top three resources you'd recommend listeners today? So it could be anything from podcasts to books to tools to whatever. So I think one of the things, um, and, and you no, know, the, the the more expensive you, you become, the, the hopefully the better network you have. Um, and I think a good chunk of the value I get comes from being uh, in closed communities. Uh, to be honest, like the the, the best uh, advice, tips, and tricks isn't publicly shared, uh, and so I am in many uh, Slack groups and WhatsApp groups of small communities uh, uh, that will share privately uh, the learnings, especially the failures. It's essential to know what hasn't worked for others. Essential, right? So that, that that's one thing. Second, I read many books on psychology. If you have a, if you haven't read uh, uh, Robert Chaldean's book. Uh, on influence, read it. And if you have read it, go read his latest book on free suasion, uh, which mm -hmm. is a lot of what I'm doing. Uh, psychology books, are, are a lot of that, um, of course. And, and, and the third thing I'd say is, um, try to understand what are others doing. Spend time looking at your competitors and try to understand, like, what are they doing? What is their edge? Or can I find something? I spend a lot of time doing that. Like marketing is competitive. You don't live in a bubble. Okay, you compete like most of the people compete with someone else. Yeah, I, I concur with with Chalini's book. I mean, it's it's been mentioned so many times on the podcast. It's actually the most mentioned book on the podcast, most mentioned resource. But you know what? Every time I I, I force myself to reread it every six, twelve months, and every time you're like, "Fuck, I forgot this." I forgot this actual thing, and let me try something on this. You know, it's you need to really. Humans are really good at a lot of things, but we are so bad on empathy and understanding others. And because it's so counterintuitive, so you need to force yourself to fucking, you know, to to force feed yourself in, in terms of the biases that we all, that we have. 
And then you can use that in your marketing. I could also recommend the Freakonomics, a uh, really, really good book uh, on understanding like human behavior. And there's, there's, there's a couple of those uh, also. Uh, there's the one from uh, Dan Ariely uh, also. Um, uh, so yeah, there's a couple of good books there uh, that, uh, that I would recommend to understand like how are humans uh, irrational, right? Um, I think the book from Dan Ariely is like predictably rational. Yeah. Uh, it's a really, really good book, uh, also, and and I use a lot of that in my day to day. I read um, the Choice Factory recently, and I don't know if you if you read it. It's really good. It's also psychological uh, psychology studies and stuff. It's 50, 50 studies, and it's really well written and it's quite simple to digest. A quick example, like I, I read a bit of like studies from um, Harvard uh, HBS, Harvard Business uh, uh, Review, and uh, uh, one of those I read a couple of years ago was how um, hot drinks uh, increased a likelihood of accepting a business offer with cold drinks, which is the basis for my hot coffee experiment. There you I go. read that and I said, damn, this is interesting. And it's recommended that if you're buying a house or a car, always take cold water. Guillaume, <laughs> yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to. Thanks for sharing your some of your secrets for the real, real secrets. You're probably going to have to join your, Facebook or your WhatsApp group. But where can listeners connect with you, learn more from you? And ask you questions, if any. Yeah, uh, LinkedIn is a, is a good uh, source of choice. There's uh, a bunch of videos of me on YouTube. Also, uh, if you want to check out the different keynotes I've done, uh, they are, they're all on YouTube. There's like probably 30 or 40 of those. Nice. Once again, thank you so much. Thanks, Louis. Thanks, everyone. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also... Uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends, your colleagues, or whoever might like it. And also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast. Because if you leave us a five-star review, it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker. So thank you so much once again and au revoir.
And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.